Welcome to Bankless, where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. And today on Bankless, we are going deep into the frontier of restaking. We are going so deep, in fact, that we are bringing in some extra help to guide us down the very thorny and unmapped landscape of restaking. What is restaking? If you don't know what restaking is, this episode might not be for you. This is not an afternoon hike of a conversation. We are not strolling around the park. We are going so far into the unknown that we need a guide to make sure that we don't get lost. Tim Bako on this episode is tapping in as our technical moderator for this conversation, our guide for the journey into restaking. So not every Bankless listener will be prepared for this conversation. This one is a hard one. If you want to be adequately equipped for the conversation that awaits, I recommend listening to the Bankless episode with Sriram about the restaking meta that we are embarking upon. That We did that episode with Sriram just a few weeks ago. That will get you up to speed and ready to understand some of the nuances and problems that we are going to suss out here on today's episode. Because today on the show, we have one of the largest and most gigabrain panels that we've ever had on Bankless. We have Dankrad Feist. We have Jesse, aka 13-year-old VC. That is her pseudonym. Justin Drake, Vitalik Buterin. And of course, Sriram Kanon himself, the founder of Eigenlayer and perhaps the creator of Resaking, all moderated by Tim Bako. Bankless Nation, I'm going to be with you in the audience on this one. This one is well above my pay grade, but you are in good hands with Tim. So I'm going to sit back and get my learn on, and I'm sure that you will as well. So let's get right into our conversation with one of the most brainiac panels that we've ever had on Bankless. But first, a moment to talk about some of these fantastic sponsors that make this show possible. Kraken Pro has easily become the best crypto trading platform in the industry. The place I use to check the charts and the crypto prices, even when I'm not looking to place a trade. On Kraken Pro, you'll have access to advanced charting tools, real-time market data, and lightning-fast trade execution, all inside their spiffy new modular interface. Kraken's new customizable modular layout lets you tailor your trading experience to suit your needs. Pick and choose your favorite modules and place them anywhere you want in your screen. With Kraken Pro, you have that power. Whether you are a seasoned pro or just starting out, join thousands of traders who trust Kraken Pro for their crypto trading needs. Visit pro.kraken.com to get started today. Enter Mantle, an entire ecosystem dedicated to the adoption of decentralized token-governed technologies. Mantle, formerly known as BitDAO, is the first DAO-led Web3 ecosystem, all built on top of Mantle's first core product, the Mantle Network, a brand new high-performance Ethereum Layer 2 built differently from the other Layer 2s that you may be familiar with. Mantle asks the question, how would you build a Layer 2 if you had the technology of 2023? Mantle Network is a modular Layer 2 built using the OP stack, but uses Eigenlayer's data availability solution instead of the expensive Ethereum Layer 1. Not only does this reduce Mantle Network's gas fees by 80% compared to other Layer 2s, but it also reduces gas fee volatility, providing a more stable foundation for Mantle's applications. The Mantle Treasury is one of the biggest DAO-owned treasuries in DeFi, which is seeding an ecosystem of projects from all around the Web3 space for Mantle. Mantle already has sub-communities from around Web3 onboarded to help the growth of Mantle, like Game7 for Web3 Gaming, or EduDAO for in the world of DeSci, and Bybit for TVL and liquidity and on-ramps. So if you want to build on the Mantle network, Mantle is offering a grants program that provides milestone-based funding to promising projects that help expand, secure, and decentralize Mantle. If you want to get started working with the first DAO-led Layer 2 ecosystem, check out Mantle at mantle.xyz and follow them on Twitter at 0xMantle. If you haven't 
haven't experienced the superpowers that a smart contract wallet gives you, check out Ambire. Ambire works with all the EVM chains that are out there, the layer twos like Arbitrum, Optimism, and Polygon, but also the non-Ethereum chains like Avalanche and Phantom. Because of the power of smart contract wallets, Ambire lets you pay for gas in stable coins, meaning you'll never have to spend your precious ETH again. The web app has numerous fiat on-ramps to make it easy to dump your fiat for crypto. And if you like self-custody, but you still want training wheels, you can recover a lost Ambire wallet using an email and password, but without giving the Ambire team any control over your funds. Check it out at ambire.com for the web app experience. But also, the Ambire mobile wallet is coming soon for both iOS and Android. And if you want to be a beta tester, you can sign up at ambire.com app. And since you stayed to the very end of this ad read, you should know that Ambire is airdropping its wallet token to early users for simply just using the wallet. So if you want to get started with Ambire, all the links that you need are in the show notes. Bankless Nation, welcome to our restaking deep dive. This episode is not meant to be an introduction to restaking. This will be a much more technical conversation as to the current frontier of thought from the ETH core devs and other restaking enthusiasts about how the meta of restaking might interact interfere with the goals of the Ethereum execution later. For an explanation of restaking and what restaking is, there is a 101 or 201 level content that we did with Sriram uh, not too long ago. So see that previous episode if you need to get downloaded as to the state of Eigenlayer, what restaking is and, and what it does. We hopefully want to go very deep in this episode. So deep, in fact, that I am only able to guide us so far in this conversation. So moving forward, I am tapping in Tim Bako as our guide into the frontier of the staking meta and the Ethereum protocol. Tim, welcome back to Bankless, and thank you so much for taking the reins here. Yeah, thanks for having me again. Before we bring on the largest panel that we've ever had here at Bankless, I want to pick up a little bit of your brain, Tim. What are you hoping to accomplish in this episode and what context and frame of mind should listeners have as they enter this conversation? Right. So um, we're going to have people from both uh, Eigenlayer and then the research uh, side of Ethereum and, and kind of the broader community. And my goal is like, if everyone can understand everyone's perspective a bit better by the end of the call, I'll be happy. And I think as a byproduct of that, we're going to have to dive into all of the issues around restaking. Um, so folks can expect, you know, discussion of like the technical issues, the trade-offs, uh, the general roadmap and um, the potential risks around restaking. And then hopefully the folks on the panel have a better understanding of each other's perspective by the end of the hour. Why would you say that this has captured the attention of so many of the Ethereum core devs and surrounding Ethereum community? Like why in simple terms, is this a big deal? Yeah, I think it's because it introduces uh, changes to the incentive landscape, which the protocol is not aware of, you know, natively. So obviously we have all these incentives in the Ethereum protocol, like how much stake do we issue, or sorry, how much rewards do we issue to stakers? What are the penalties? Um, what do we do with transaction fees? And, you know, those sort of all work really well if you think of Ethereum as a closed system where, you know, there's not uh, too much interference with it. But then when you see something like restaking, uh, you know, which fundamentally changes the reward landscape for stakers and, um, it might end up changing sort of the decisions they make around the risk they're willing to take. If they uh, if they take risk and uh, things go poorly, then it might change the decisions they make with regards to their role as a staker on the Ethereum mainnet. So it's really this intersection of like um, the incentive design and the edges of the protocol and how they interact together. Um, I think that's something that people in recent years have become much more attuned to. And um, yeah, it's why it causes so much conversation. 
All right, Tim, are you ready for me to hand over the reins to you? Yeah, let's do it. All right, Tim, I'm going to let you go. But first, I'm going to introduce you to Dankrad, the father and father of modern dank sharding, uh, researcher at the Ethereum Foundation. Dankrad, welcome back to Bankless. Thank you for having me. We also have Justin Drake, father of ultrasound money. He's been on the show a no large number of times before. Justin, also welcome back to Bankless. Thanks for having me too. And first time on the show, we have Jesse, who I think has posed some of the biggest questions about restaking, is definitely on the frontier of restaking thought. Jesse, welcome to Bankless for your first time. Thank you for having me. And then, of course, we have Vitalik Buterin, just some guy on Twitter and also famous for having the most ignored EIPs in Ethereum. Vitalik, welcome back to Bankless. Hello, everyone. It's good to be here again. And last but definitely not least, we have Sriram, the father of modern restaking himself. Sriram, welcome back to your second time on Bankless. Thank you so much, David. Excited to be here. Thanks to all the EF uh, friends for coming here and Jesse. Tim, I am out of here, my man. This is all you. Awesome. Thank you, David. Um, I guess one place to kick this off uh, to make sure that we, we sort of dive into the deep end pretty quickly is if uh, the four of you, uh, Dankrad, Justin, Jesse, and Vitalik, maybe just want to take a minute to share like your current brain dump of like where your head is at with regards to restaking. Uh, we can kick it off from there. And then Sriram, I'll make sure to give you some time after to uh, respond to the comments that'll come up. Um, but I think, yeah, quickly, uh, Jesse, I don't know if you want to kick us off. Um, yeah, when you think restaking, like what are the things that are coming through your mind right now? Uh, yeah, so I think to me, restaking is that one simple, elegant idea that's inevitably coming true. Um, I think it has real yield for users that come from real utility. It has real excitement and traction behind it. I think there's, in the process, real value capture as well. Um, however, it's also an opportunity that I believe has been slept on because I probably talked to hundreds of you know developers one-on-one -on -one and tens of ecosystems. And some of our most like smartest people are working on ZK, on-chain games, MEV, but restaking is, I think, uh, some of the biggest upcoming nerds type that there's just not that many experts in. Um, there's many interesting topics to be explored that comes out of this Pandora's box. My friend Kaido, you know, once said that you could probably get a PhD just studying any of the, of the rabbit holes into restaking. And there's just that not that many experts uh, in this space. So I would encourage everyone to study and become an expert. Awesome, thanks. Um, Justin, you want to go next? Sure, yeah. So my perspective is that um, restaking is a little bit like AI. On the one hand, there's an opportunity to really upgrade Ethereum, kind of make, make it the, the, the center of economic security and really strengthen the, its network effects, have more applications, more cash flows. But on the other hand, there's systemic risks. There's big, big downsides. There's a, a large blast radius. And you know what we potentially could be losing is the decentralization of the, the staking operators. That's what I'm most worried about. And that could have ripple effects around losing credible neutrality, losing monetary premium and things like that. Now, I guess personally, I've been digging into uh, restaking very seriously for the last two months. And I feel good about it as a researcher because it kind of extends my runway. But uh, on the other hand, I must say that thinking about these systemic risks you know, deeply has made me a bit more, you know, gloomy and doomy, uh, but I'm trying to, to remain optimistic uh, in my research. Thanks. Uh, Vitalik, you want to go next? Yeah, I think uh, I have pretty much the same perspective as Justin on this. Okay. Uh, Dankrad, anything from you? 
Um, yeah, I mean, I would just like to continue what Justin was saying. I think it's super interesting because um, to me, like restaking in many has many similarities to uh, liquid staking, and like I think the risks are in many ways quite similar. So it is very interesting in that at the same time, um, it could actually help decentralization in that it makes uh, solo staking. Uh, more competitive and more uh, capital efficient, but at the same time runs the risk of like completely compromising the protocol by rehypothecating basically all the stake and like um, yeah removing our uh, security by by uh, using the stake for something else. So it's a super interesting topic to think about. Thanks. And yes, Riram, I guess we've heard it's almost like a barbell of opinions, right? Like it could make solo staking better, a uh, super, uh, super interesting problem for builders, new source of yield, but then it's like AI could destroy centralization and affect the credible neutrality. So how do you think about uh, restaking like from your vantage point now? No, this is, uh, I, I think we do agree that there are uh, complex risks and that's why I think uh, it's important to take a constrained approach in building restaking. The constraints being like what is really good for the ecosystem and uh, having constraint on that, you know, building what new innovation can be unleashed based on, you know, this concept. So that's how we are thinking about it. Our driving value is permissionless innovation. The idea that anybody can come and build new things on top of this massive trust source and, uh, I think the fundamental thing we are all seeing here is there is a kind of a trade-off between shared security and you know risk contagion. And I think understanding that sharply, as well as building systems that make sure that uh, uh, the there is you know a certain amount of uh, innovation that can be unleashed while satisfying the constraints of minimizing risks and contagion is how we are thinking about it. Thanks. Um, yeah, I guess, Justin, to go back to you, you said, you know, the past couple of months have made you into a bit of a restaking doomer. Um, can you can you paint us a picture of like your, your mental evolution and like what your current view of the risks is and, and why they could be bad? Right. So things have actually evolved in the last few few days where, you know, I feel like I've made uh, some some breakthroughs in terms of, um, you know, having solutions if we really want to kind of fight uh, solo staking. So I used to believe for 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 a long time that um, restaking was uh, inevitable, but actually maybe there are some like redesigns of proof of stake that make it like proof of work where you can't really do restaking with, with, with slashing. But put, putting this aside and just assuming that we, we continue on the current path uh, where we're at, like one of the my main concerns is basically the, the erosion of, of solo staking. So actually the, the opposite of what the Dankrat is, 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 uh, is hoping for. Um, and basically the reason is that Right now, there's one staking application, you know, restaking application zero, if you if you will, which is to participate in the beacon chain and at the execution layer uh, of Ethereum. But there's going to be many other options going forward, and for each one of these restaking applications, a decision needs to be made um, by the, the the staker. Either you don't participate in that that restaking application, and I think that might actually be not be really an option 
for some restaking, restaking applications. And the reason is that there's this economic forcing function going on. If you don't want to play the game, you're uncompetitive from an economic standpoint. The other option might be to become a solo restaker. So you, you know, retain your, 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 your sovereignty. But my, my worry here, and I can, there's basically a whole laundry list of, of things that basically jeopardize um, the possibility for, 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 for solo restaking. So right now, when we think of solo staking, we think of a low powered node that's, for example, DAP node. We think of distributed validators like, like OBO and MPC friendliness. We think of the minimum stake being 32 ETH. Uh, we think of low maintenance. We think of client diversity determinism, smoothing, synchrony, all sorts of things that we think about, each one of which could be jeopardized even by one single restaking application. Um, and so basically the, the, what could happen is that these, these solo um, stakers might be forced to the third option, which is to, to do delegated restaking. And delegated restaking is, um, is all about the trusted, trusted operators. And one of the, 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 the problems here is there's a, there's a ransom attack. So, you know, we, we used to think that, you know, we can delegate and still hold custody of, of the stake, but it turns out that when you're delegating stake in the context of restaking, you're allowing this operator to, to slash you. And what this operator can do is basically threaten to slash you unless you pay a ransom, which is almost the full amount that they can slash. So for example, if they can slash you for 32 ETH, they can say, I'm going to slash you unless you pay me 31 ETH and you get one ETH back. And it's in your best interest to just go ahead and do that. And so you, you're effectively losing the, the, the benefits of the segregation between the staking key and, 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 and the withdrawal key. Um, yeah. A, a um, brief comment there is, it seems like you can have immutable services whose slashing contracts are immutable. And, you know, as long as we encourage stakers to only operate to, only opt into restaking where it is immutable service contracts, you don't have this risk that suddenly somebody can come and say something because it's not a thing that anybody can say. Slashing is written into a contract. Maybe, yeah, on that point, uh, Sriram, can you take a couple minutes to walk us through exactly like what exists today in the restaking architecture, like for Eigenlayer specifically? Because um, I think it's probably helpful. Like I, I suspect most listeners have like heard of like restaking as a general concept, but like if you can walk us through the flow of like, I'm a validator, I set my withdrawals credential to this contract, this contract as X. Um, yeah, I think that would help kind of ground the conversation and what actually yeah. happens, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, there are two kinds of restaking we allow. One is native restaking, which is essentially you go and stake in Ethereum and then you have a staking key and a withdrawal credential. You set the withdrawal credential to a smart contract, basically to the Eigenlayer smart contracts. And in particular, inside the Eigenlayer smart contract, you create your own zone or a pod called an Eigenpod, which you control. And you basically you know, set your withdrawal credential to that. And now like the Eigenlayer system thinks of you as having restaked. And then now you have the freedom to opt into new services. So what's a new service? So there's an Eigenlayer set of smart contracts on Ethereum. And then there are service contracts. Anybody who's building new services writes a service contract and has a service off-chain code. So imagine you're building a new uh, consensus protocol. You basically you know, have like a 
like a get node and a prism node type of thing for that. You know, you ship it to people, uh, you know, this is off-chain code written in arbitrary languages. They download and run it off-chain. On-chain, you have the service contract, which has basically three kinds of conditions. One is registration conditions. What, how to register into the, or who's allowed to register into the restaking for that particular service. Then you have uh, payment conditions, or if you validate X number of blocks or do X number of signatures, you'll be paid X. And then the third one is slashing conditions. These three are written into the service contracts. So you're not really giving power to anybody else. You're giving power specifically to the service contract to enforce a certain kind of condition. And you know, in the ideal eventual world, both eigenlayer will the core contracts will be immutable and service contracts, you know, as they ossify and become correct, could become immutable. And when you're opting in as a restaker, it is pretty much just fully algorithmic code that you're basically opting into. So that's the structure of the system. So essentially as a staker, now, you know, you've set your withdrawal credentials. Why do you set your withdrawal credentials here is essentially you're adding one step in your withdrawal flow. On the eigenlayer contracts, you anyway setting the withdrawal credential for your eigenpod to your own like wallet, right? So essentially it's just one more stop in the way of withdrawal. And the reason this is important is to impose any kind of slashing or negative penalties at the eigenlayer level. You promise to do something, you promise to validate some other set of systems, and then you don't do it, then you know these systems can enforce the system of like positive and negative penalties, uh, positive incentives and negative incentives there. I uh, just want to kind of just state one, one more thing. Our eventual view is something like eigenlayer doesn't necessarily remain as a separate layer on top of Ethereum. Just like we had MEV Boost and eventually it was understood what the right interfaces are or it is under, uh, getting understood what the right interfaces are and, and it becomes part of a native PBS type system. We absolutely want to figure out how to make you know something like Eigenlayer a default part of Ethereum. That would be our ideal end state. So as to minimize the accounting uncertainties between Ethereum itself and anything else that can be built on top. You know, our vision, like I said, is permissionless innovation. We want to enable anybody who wants to build new kinds of infrastructure in the space to come and build it. As long as that goal is met, we have achieved our goal. Thanks. Yeah, I think this really helps like ground the conversation and uh, kind of be a bit more specific going forward. And uh, I guess following from that, uh, Jesse, you mentioned earlier, like uh, restaking is this really new primitive that builders should get excited about. Like when you sort of hear this entire description, like what are the 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 hooks or like the things uh, on which you think builders should be uh, spending their attention and, and trying to extend and whatnot? Yeah. Um, so in my spare time, I run some hacker houses and just even from the hacker house applications and some of the residents that, you know, some projects that they're building, um, there's a few categories one, right? One is with security. There's this project called Jusera that is a hacker that we're hosting. They're basically allowing, you know, restaked validators to detect and perform emergency responses for protocols of their choice, whereby, you know, performing advanced validation, validation checks on the protocol security, um, this part can be offloaded from the blockchain, performed off-chain via, you know, commitments ensured by their collateral via restaking, right? Another example is a lot of MEV projects, right? There's 
another project that is doing decentralized auction market, selling users order flow to searchers. And in the process, they want to essentially slash malicious participants stake who perform sandwich attacks. And this can be ensured with, you know, Eigenlayer. Another project that we see, um, this guy build restaking.wtf. It's essentially, instead of leveraging only ETH as collateral for restaking, you can essentially leverage any assets as collateral, right? And then he went on to build something else with objective, credible commitments via, via ZK, where, you know, validators' actions that were previously non-binding via just crypto economic security, for example, maybe like non-inclusion of blocks can now be made binding with ZK uh, in a way where ZK would actually extend uh, crypto economic security um, and in a way that scales. So I think if I have the intel correctly, maybe Eigenlayer has like three stages, right? And there's like one year away from actually launching middleware marketplace. I think a potential um, pattern or of, of behavior that I observe is we may see faster experiments where restaking emerge where there is an allegiance of restaking protocols, meaning maybe five uh, protocols out there are friends with each other and they want to essentially restake onto each other's network and share this uh, security with amongst themselves. I think that's a very interesting approach where, you know, like risk is limited only to these set of protocols and they can launch these experiments much faster. Um, and then later I was told that this actually is happening on Cosmos with mesh security where you know, sovereign chains and rollups are across carrying each other. Uh, but now we could potentially have this behavior on Ethereum and other ecosystems as well. Got it. Thanks. Um, and I don't know, Vitalik or Denkrat, if either of you want to maybe, uh, again, to make things more precise, based on this entire flow of like, you know, eigenlayer and what people build on top of it, like, what are the things that can break uh, through this? You know, what are the specific like attack surfaces that we should be really concerned about and uh, where we should maybe try and like limit degrees of freedom? Yeah, so I, I think I have uh, basically two types of concerns. Uh, so one concern is the uh, kind of type of concern that I mentioned in my post about a month ago, right? Like basically where <clears throat> restaking in the sense of just like collateralizing um, or reusing your collateral for other applications kind of slides into restaking in the sense of like finding ways to sort of sneak other protocols into being enshrined as part of Ethereum in some way. And I think it's good to see that there is a yeah, desire from um, you know so many yeah, people across the spectrum here to try not to do that and to try to you know, limit ways of uh, getting into that. And then the second type of concern, I think, uh, I mean, I think it's important to stress that this is like not uniquely Eigenlayer's fault. This is a discussion that stretches way beyond Eigenlayer. It also, you know, gets into Lido. It also gets into like just the limits of the protocol itself, which is uh, like basically, um, you know, the uh, erosion of, so of uh, solo staking and how do we make sure that solo staking continues to be viable and uh, competitive going forward. And... That's a, yeah, a a place where I think uh, it's very possible to imagine ways in which uh, and all of these protocols can be designed in ways that are solo staker friendly. Um, I think uh, the biggest challenges tends to come in places where like you're not just relying on staked collateral as uh, like what economists would call a hostage, you're relying on it as a deposit. Right, so like a hostage is, um, you know, if you do something bad, it burns. The deposit is, uh, if uh, you do something bad, then it compensates the people who get hurt. 
And like one example of uh, the deposit would be if you look at something like Rye, right? Like something like a yeah, CDP backed stablecoin. Like for people holding the stablecoin to actually be safe, you need to actually have a deposit, right? It would be yeah, nice for that deposit to be staked ETH so that the yeah, interest rate from the, or the, the return rate from holding the Rye doesn't have to like compete with the, yeah, with the returns from staking. And instead you can stack the two on top of each other, right? But you would actually need this uh, reliable guarantee that, uh, you know, if there is a margin call, like you actually get all of the ETH out instead of like potentially getting some random amount from zero to 32 of the ETH out. And like most of the time it's 30, but some of the time it could be much less and, um, you know, it, it gets weird, right? And so that's like one of those kind of challenge points where I think there's a lot more room for kind of thinking around protocol design, right? But there's, uh, but like that's, yeah, like, like like that's one particular application of uh, restaking that's uh, a little bit more more challenging. And like the challenge is basically that it also creates uh, centralization risks because uh, kind of trustworthy yeah, stakers would be valued more by the system than untrustworthy stakers because trustworthy stakers would would be much less likely to uh, actually get slashed. Um, and and uh, it creates reputation systems. Reputation systems lead to centralization and all of those things. The um, I think it's, and then it's also important to remember that there's like a side to the whole, um, you know, solo versus centralized staking thing that's have ultimately the responsibility of the staking system itself, right? Like one simple example is like probably the biggest reason why I personally am not like just staking all of my ETH and I'm instead like staking a fairly small portion is uh, because if you stake your ETH, it has to be on uh, like the keys that access it have to be public on some uh, system that's online. And like for safety, it has to be a multi-sig and multi-sigs for staking are still fairly, fairly difficult to set up. Um, and, um, you know, it just, it gets complicated in a bunch of ways. And like, that's the sort of thing that probably could be improved through infrastructure, right? Like there's this uh, entire other conversation of like, if we want to make solar staking easier, then there's just like, a lot of infrastructure work that needs to be done that's uh, independent of um, you know what all of these staking protocols do uh, but yeah other but but at the same time there's definitely a lot of these uh, problems where kind of better integration with uh, restaking and uh, you know better integration with or alternatives to delegation and all of these things can actually help a lot thanks um maybe another uh framing for this question as well is um you mentioned, I guess, Talek, that uh, this is not just an eigenlayer problem. You know, it's like a broader problem, and and we see similar parts of it in LSTs. Um, but I'd be curious to maybe dig into this more. Like, are there specific concerns about eigenlayers approach? Um, and Sriram Dori will give you some time after to, to to respond on this. But like, um, are there things you know with eigenlayers specifically that can uh or that have you know, shifted us towards a slightly worse equilibrium rather than, um, beside from just, you know, doing restaking. Um, and yeah, let's let's start here. And then I'm sure some follow-ons from that. Sorry, can you kind of like- Yeah, so, so basically, is there something about eigenlayers approach or design or, you know, uh, like way mm -hmm. it's gone to market that um, beyond just the raw restaking uh, risks that like you mentioned, um, has has like made things worse. Mm. Ways that it's made things worse aside from just uh, being restaking. Re 
Yeah. Aside from VIA restaking and yeah. um so like specific decisions that the team has made or yeah or approaches because like you know you mentioned like or mm. and Sriram you touched on this as well you know you've obviously thought about like how people are gonna be able to restake you know which are like the first applications um how you think about your roadmap um so are there parts of that that you know could be better or could have been different um it's fine if there's not don't have to like find something yeah but, I, I I can't think of any yeah. amazing answers I don't know if anyone. I mean, I guess one thing that could be said is the, yeah. the accelerationist uh, argument, right? Like three RAM it just is is here um, <laughs> and it's <laughs> accelerating the discussion. And I think one thing which would be you know very nice is if there also was an accelerationist effort for alignment. So I'm thinking maybe like a an in-house team um, that that is just dedicated to 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 alignment. Um, and I think there's there's some catching up that we're doing within the Ethereum Foundation in terms of building you know such a team. And you know, plug if you want to do restaking alignment research, uh, do DM me. Yes, uh, we also want to organize an event at DevConnect uh, in Istanbul. So that would be one uh, one place where we can discuss both alignment and applications in. Um, we're very much open to this suggestion of actually building a, not only a team, but also a culture of alignment. Um, I want to just address like one or two uh, points that were brought up by Vitalik. Uh, on, one is on um, solo staking. I think one of the things, you know, uh, we are doing, I, so before that, I want to phrase the scope of what we are doing at Eigenlayer relative to general restaking. I think you could restake and like reuse collateral in financial or other applications, what Vitalik called deposit. And you could restake and use only that, you know, your collateral for promising that you are uh, doing validation correctly, the so-called hostage, I think that Vitalik referred to. Um, Eigenlayer's goal is to be a marketplace of decentralized trust not a financial hypothecation platform for taking uh, collateral staked in Ethereum and then using it in other ways. I think this is much more slippery slope and one has to go very, tread very carefully. And one may ask like, how how do you, Sriram or somebody else decide like what, what set of use cases kind of get built on, on the system? Uh, again, there is the starting point and there is kind of equilibrium for these systems. Uh, the starting point that we are taking is, uh, you know, because you know, new applications, when they are launched on Eigenlayer, their contracts may have like bugs and other issues. One of the things we're building is uh, uh, that these be subject to a social layer inside of Eigenlayer. We call this a slashing veto. The only role of the veto is to slash, uh, to, the only role of the committee is to veto slashing decisions. And initially, of course, this would be like a, a, a single committee, but eventually this could be an intersubjective thing like relays, right? Relays in the Ethereum ecosystem, you know, anybody can be a relay. They just are a doubly trusted party. If uh, a proposer agrees to a relay and a builder agrees to a relay, they have like a potential market making opportunity. In the same way, they can emerge a marketplace of slashing vetoes where like somebody can say, hey, we are a committee. We want to propose, you know, participate in mediating, you know, uh, these slashing veto decisions. 
And as long as the staker and the servers are comfortable, you can actually make the market there. But the, the point is, whoever is doing this kind of a slashing veto also needs to onboard services because they have to veto the slashing. And so the way we restrict the scope of applications is first by shelling point. The idea that we are actually only building a decentralized trust marketplace or a validation marketplace, not a financial uh, primitive. And number two, you know, things like the slashing veto committee have the ability to onboard services. And eventually the way we think about it is when you're not very trusted, it's the same uh, like um, uh, training wheels argument for rollups, right? So in, when you're building a rollup, initially you need to add training wheels, but eventually you move off and say that I don't need training wheels. Same thing, services built on eigenlayer will eventually go, initially go through a slashing veto. Eventually, as they ossify, they will just say, I don't need a slashing veto and stakers can trust me because I've been on this and running it for one year, two years. So they go, to become completely non-subjective. So that is the roadmap that we envision. And it is going to be very difficult to go beyond a certain credibility for services doing all kinds of random things and you know ransom attacks and other things to gain enough trust for stakers to put their own money at risk. You know, there is no incentive misalignment at the staker level. The staker doesn't want to lose their money to a ransom attack, right? Like, and they're not going to stake too services which don't have not established enough credible trust or are fully immutable and programmable that they can actually verify. So anyway, that's that's a couple of points. One final point on decentralization is, uh, I think Dankrad mentioned this a little bit, which is how potentially Eigenlayer could help decentralization. You know, if, if you remove Eigenlayer from the equation, like for liquid staking, the only benefit was in DeFi applications and the only yield was coming from that. And I think this has very strong like centralization tendencies. Whereas what Eigenlayer is doing is try to establish a decentralization or decentralized trust marketplace where there may be a premium to be paid for decentralization itself. Because if people value decentralized nodes for doing validation, they could say, I only want to recruit the non-centralized nodes for my service. And this can lead to additional yield for like homestakers who might want to run lightweight services across the spectrum. So that's a few uh, points on how we are thinking about both alignment and decentralization. Thanks. Um, and I guess, you know, Justin, you were saying you're talking about like in-house alignment teams. I, I feel like the, maybe the broader version of that is like, what should the Ethereum community be doing now as a whole? Um, to ensure like restaking is aligned. And there's different angles this can take, right? Like, but, you know, it could be building different, like competing LSTs pro or uh, restaking protocols like uh, we've started to see on the LST front. Um, there's the whole area of like around protocol changes. And then there's also like middleware, like, uh, you know, things like we've seen like MEV boost. Um, so like, yeah, I, I guess pretty much from everyone here, if you have any ideas or suggestions to the broader Ethereum community of like, which paths should we be pursuing um, in parallel to like maybe Eigenlayer accelerating it, accelerating the restaking future um, so that uh, we don't get caught by surprise? I mean, I'm happy to take this. Yeah, I mean, for, I, for, yeah. for, for me personally, there's, there's kind of three prongs. The first one is you know to just build a team and build the culture around it. And I think the, the culture will come from an, an awareness of the risks. And I think maybe that we could spend a whole podcast on, you know, what are the, the restaking risks and really flesh those out so that there is a, a public consciousness. 
Um, and then, you know, a second big prong of, of my research is around, you know, insurance, the, the nuclear option. Like, if things go really, really bad, can we redesign Ethereum proof of stake in minimal ways in such, such that, you know, we can neuter restaking? And I'm happy to say that the answer is probably yes, at least for trustless restaking, uh, which is punitive, which has uh, slashing. So that, that is a... You know, something that makes me sleep better at night, that we have this card in the back pocket. Can you explain maybe how that would work, just high level for our listeners? Yeah. Right. So there's two ways to unlock uh, trustless restaking. One is through withdrawal uh, contracts, uh, which is what Eigenlayer is doing. And then the other way is to basically bootstrap yourself on top of the existing slashing conditions. Um, either using, using hardware, but maybe even trustlessly using very fancy cryptography called witness encryption. Now, on the, the withdrawal uh, contract side of things, what we can do is we can actually make the withdrawal contract updatable. Um, and the, the reason why we didn't make it updatable by the, 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 the staking key was that if your staking key gets compromised, then the, the, the most that you can lose is just the, the one ETH because you get slashed. And so the ransom attack is very, very limited. And so actually, you know, you still hold custody of your funds. But what will happen with restaking is that you're going to be max exposed to slashing. Like if you mess up, you're potentially going to lose the, the 32 e for some very large, large portion. And so the, the, the separation between the staking key and the withdrawal key is not that valuable. And so making it updatable, um, you know, could be a way to basically neuter uh, re restaking. And by the way, it also solves another problem, which which is uh, you know liquid staking token. So in that sense, it is really a nuclear option, um, and you know there would have to be a whole migration path, which might take several years. But you know if we do see that restaking it doesn't lead to to good equilibriums, then then we at least have that option. And then the second thing that uh, we can do is basically remove the ability to bootstrap on the slashing conditions by removing the slashing conditions. Um, and the, basically, the, I discovered a, you know, a couple of weeks ago this amazing cryptographic primitive called one-shot signatures. Basically, one-shot signatures allow you to sign a message once, and then the staking key magically destroys itself. And you can think, okay, how is that possible? Um, and the 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 you mean the signing key, right? You said the signing key. Okay, yeah, just yeah. Because, okay, yeah. Yeah, the signing key, the, the staking key, the secret key, um, destroys itself. And the way that it's it's done is basically by combining existing cryptography with quantum mechanics. So in quantum mechanics, you could have your secret key be a superposition of states. And then there's a theorem in, in kind of quantum mechanics called the no cloning theorem, whereby if you have a, an unknown superposition of things, you can't clone this this the this quantum object. And then the way that you sign the message is by measuring the, 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 the secret key by collapsing it and thereby destroying it. So you can only sign one single message. Now, everything else is, is just as normal. The, the signature itself is classical. Um, and, and, and so really, it's a potential future upgrade for, for removing the, 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 the slashing conditions. Now, one of the things I guess worth mentioning is that you get 80% of the neutering from the withdrawal credentials. And the reason is that um, the, the, the slashing conditions um, are kind of limited. 
right? If only a few validators get slashed around the same amount of time, they only lose a very small amount of ETH. They only really start kicking in when there's this mass slashing uh, going on. And so you get 80% of the, the benefits just by removing the withdrawal co uh, uh, contracts or making it updatable, which is very easy to do. And then the last 20%, you know, in maybe a couple of decades, we can remove with very, very fancy cryptography. MetaMask has something new. Introducing MetaMask Portfolio. MetaMask Portfolio is the best way to view your crypto portfolio from a holistic level. See everything across all the chains all at once. In your portfolio, MetaMask will report the aggregate value of all the assets in your MetaMask wallets and even the other wallets you import too. But MetaMask Portfolio isn't just a passive portfolio viewer. It is a place to do all of the money verbs that make DeFi so powerful. You can buy, swap, bridge, and stake your crypto assets. So not only is MetaMask the easiest place to see your wallets in aggregate, but it's also a powerful battle station for all of your DeFi moves. So go check out your MetaMask portfolio because it's waiting for you to open it up. Check it out at portfolio.metamask.io. You know Uniswap, it's the world's largest decentralized exchange with over $1.4 trillion in trading volume. You know this because we talk about it endlessly on Bankless. It's Uniswap, but Uniswap is becoming so much more. Uniswap Labs just released the Uniswap mobile wallet for iOS, the newest, easiest way to trade tokens on the go. With a Uniswap wallet, you can easily create or import a new wallet, buy crypto on any available exchange with your debit card with extremely low fiat on-ramp fees, and you can seamlessly swap on Mainnet, Polygon, Arbitrum, and Optimism. On the Uniswap mobile wallet, you can store and display your beautiful NFTs, and you can also explore Web3 with the in-app search features, market leaderboards, and price charts, or use Wallet Connect to connect to any Web3 application. So you can now go directly to DeFi with the Uniswap mobile wallet. Safe, simple custody from the most trusted team in DeFi. Download the Uniswap wallet today on iOS. There is a link in the show notes. Arbitrum One is pioneering the world of secure Ethereum scalability and is continuing to accelerate the Web3 landscape. Hundreds of projects have already deployed on Arbitrum One, producing flourishing DeFi and NFT ecosystems. With the recent addition of Arbitrum Nova, gaming and social dApps like Reddit are also now calling Arbitrum home. Both Arbitrum One and Nova leverage the security and decentralization of Ethereum and provide a builder experience that's intuitive, familiar, and fully EVM compatible. On Arbitrum, both builders and users will experience faster transaction speeds with significantly lower gas fees. With Arbitrum's recent migration to Arbitrum Nitro, it's also now 10 times faster than before. Visit Arbitrum.io where you can join the community, dive into the developer docs, bridge your assets, and start building your first dApp. With Arbitrum, experience Web3 development the way it was meant to be. Secure, fast, cheap, and friction-free. So I guess I have a, a, a more vanilla idea um, building on top of what Vitalik said about reputation systems. I think I think this is much more maybe easily built, uh, like some sort of reputation dashboard where it's either built in-house by restaking protocols or by third parties, where all three parties in the marketplace, the stakers, the validators, and the middlewares that require staking uh, would essentially get uh, reputation points for the stakers. You can, you know, bench on, you know, like the amount of time they've staked. I think Eigenlayer is already doing something like this with restake points. Uh, you could have a retroactive calculation based on their on-chain or even off-chain behaviors of that staker's address. You, on the validators end, you could, you know, 
display things like amount of uptime they've been running and you know some some sort of effective effectiveness rating like the rated.network i think this is a website that display this uh, metric where the maybe the bad validators not only get slashed but also get decrease in the reputation points where you know they would maybe lose priority access to other middlewares uh, and then the good validators would then be rewarded with the reputation points incentivizing them to behave more honestly and reliably from the longer term. And last but not least, for the middlewares that are actually requiring restaking, um, I think it's very, very important to display the sort of the security measures that this protocol has taken, right? Whether it's through, are they done with auditing? Are they, do they have monitoring, like risk monitoring? Or is there circuit breakers in place, et cetera, et cetera? Um, what are, you know, their slashing criteria, their slashable quota, of the amount of ETH you can actually slash, uh, what is actually the hardware, et cetera, like things that you, you very, like, I think um, directly display for the users, whether they are individual stakers or the protocols to participate in such network, um, where I think something like this would incentivize people to play repeated games with each other as opposed to one-off malicious games. Sriram, you have any thoughts on the- Yeah, I mean, in terms of alignment, I think one of the things that I think about a lot is how do we make the Ethereum protocol layer one by itself have a self-sustained system of kind of karma. You know, the action and consequence at the layer one are fully like taken care of. So we don't really have to worry about these like extraneous fixes. Like what are the things that we care about for Ethereum as a layer one? We want to make sure the system's safe and the system's live. Like these are the two fundamental things. And I think rethinking a little bit deeper, what can we do to actually make sure that it doesn't matter who builds what on top of it, there is no externality because the system has internally kind of consistent, um, you know, punishment. And I think I'll just give two quick examples of like things that we've been thinking about. One is on safety. Uh, you know, one of the things is how much security budget is sufficient for Ethereum itself on the layer one, right? And Right now it equilibrates due to the rewards curve and like what the market you know, is happy with the returns on. It doesn't equilibrate to how much security is actually needed on, on, on Ethereum because that's unmeasurable right now. And is it possible to actually build mechanisms where this information is solicited in some kind of like an incentive compatible way? So that's one, one example. And this may be things like, you know, a portion of the slash fronts from the Ethereum L1 is uh, allocated as insurance to harmed parties so that harmed parties or potentially harmed parties have a way to actually go and buy this insurance. So that, you know, what we can start doing there is establishing markets which can try to understand the security needs kind of more natively. That's number one on the safety side. On the liveness side, again, one of the most important things is, you know, how to make sure that we have like, you know, a system that doesn't have censorship. And I think this is something, you know, part of the main reason we worry about decentralization is that decentralization leads to censorship resistance. And what are the kind of like checks and balances that we can place on censorship itself? I think, again, here, by, you know, thinking a little bit more about what, what we can do here, for example, is censorship, how do you make censorship easily observable by the vast array of wallets, which could then become light nodes, which are monitoring the system? Uh, you know, can, can we make censorship observable there? 
I think we have a bunch of new ideas coming up there uh, so that when you want to slash some block proposals for not only not including the transaction, but also not attesting on other people's blocks, which include the transaction. I think this is, uh, if you can slash people and very quickly detect and come to social consensus that actually censorship is happening, not only in proposal, but also in attesting, the faster we can come to a social consensus, the easier it is to impose like UASF and other things to actually slash censorship. So by making the Ethereum L1 much more powerful and self-contained, we simply don't have to worry about what anybody else is doing anywhere, thus actually unleashing way more, you know, uh, activity. So that's at least my like hopes and dreams for where this would go. And I'm, I'm curious to hear from uh, the folks on the EF research side, like, what, how do you think about the protocol complexity associated with something like that, um, which is obviously the main thing we, we have to consider in those changes? I feel like I've definitely like slowly becoming more okay with enshrining more things than I was uh, like probably like five years ago. Like I remember the dream in the yeah, early versions of account abstraction is basically that the base protocol would just uh, define a call and the transaction would just be a call and everything else would be defined at higher layers. And account abstraction, for example, is like really starting to move away from that. And the reasons why it's moving away from that is because we realized that like we want to guarantee fairness of the mempool, guarantee censorship resistance of uh, user transactions and all of these other goals. And being able to guarantee those goals does require having more legibility into the yes, kind of the structure that's getting used to agree on what transactions are getting included, right? And so for that reason, more types of enshrining make sense. And then, you know, there's other kinds of enshrining that, you know, Justin and various people have talked about, like uh, even enshrining, you know, Z ZK EVM verification at some point, uh, if uh, like that's the way to reduce costs for, or reduce uh, code risks for rollups, for example, um, or potentially other aspects of the protocol. So if adding more, like more features to, to the base staking protocol, reduces the yeah, risk that like weird stuff happens on L2, then I, or I think that like, that is something that we should be open to. Justin, thank you. Any thoughts? I guess one of the difficulties is that you need to have adoption of this enshrined infrastructure. And I guess with, with restaking, if you don't activate the, the nuclear option, then there's always sneaky ways to to avoid this disenshrined infrastructure. But what I am hopeful will happen is that um, we will see a, 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 a what I call a generalized PBS in infrastructure come, come to play. So PBS, proposed builder separation, is this really amazing thing because it basically allows solo stakers to delegate most of the work to, to builders. And so the builders are extremely sophisticated. They could be centralized, whatever it is. But 99% of the sovereignty remains with the validator. 99% of the rewards also remain with the validator. And then 99% of the work that needs to be done is delegated away trustlessly. And this is the key word is like trustless uh, delegation. And I think what, what, we, what we can do is basically come up with this framework where most restaking applications would you know, play well in this generalized PBS. So we'd have generalized builders um, and generalized blocks and we'd have generalized relays and generalized slashing conditions and generalized inclusion lists and all of that can be generalized. Um, 
and that, that is kind of the, the happy path where we really delicately thread the needle and, and don't fall into this dystopia uh, where we have the, the, the trusted delegation at, at mass scale. Uh, but there's a lot that needs to happen for that. One is a lot of engineering work. You know, even PBS and Entrain PBS, that's just focused for one restaking application, which is you know, the execution layer, that's already a, a humongous amount of work. Uh, and so doing it for you know, a whole class of restaking applications will be you know, very difficult. I think another thing that needs to happen is basically social norms and social education. We need to understand as a community, as developers, as users, that, that you know, it, it, it is beneficial to fit within this framework. And so if you have kind of stray restaking applications that don't fit within this framework, then, then you know, maybe they, they should suffer competitively relative to others that do. And then I think another you know, really important component, um, and here it's kind of more of a, of a wait and see, is what are the economic forces at play? So really what we want is the, the staking yield for institutions to be no greater than the staking yield for, for solar validators. So what, what is you know, likely going to happen, unfortunately, is that there's going to be we're going to lose this property of fairness. So if you put one unit of stake, some amount of ETH, different people, different stakers are going to have, get different returns. Now, the reason is that there's going to be some restaking applications that are only going to cater for institutions. So for example, um, if, if there's a, a restaking application that can only support a thousand nodes, well, we have a hundred, you know, hundreds of thousands of validators. And so in order to become a node, you need to come in as, as multiple validators, as a, as a lump. Uh, and so if you only have 32 ETH, then you're not even eligible to, to this restaking application. But the, the good news is that there might be some restaking applications that are kind of anti-institutional. Um, some of them may be because you know, they really want to tap into this decentralization. And, but some of them, one of the things I've been thinking about is, is Ponzi games. Right. If you have some sort of, of Ponzi game, some sort of dog token or whatever it is, uh, that then the institutions, you know, the buttoned up Coinbase's and, and BlackRock's or whatever it is, they won't, they're not going to touch it. Um, and so, you know, weirdly enough, I've become uh, bullish on, on Ponzi games in the context of, of restaking. Wow. Uh, they just gave off youth. Well, I mean, yeah, um, not not want to encourage the last part. That's uh, my least favorite part of crypto. But uh, generally, like I think um, my comment on like trying to enshrine and putting something into um, good rails, I think it's possible actually, and we should be doing more of it. I think this is like a great uh, point to start thinking about it. Like, how can we um, how can we kind of take more active control of how people use the protocol? And I think if you give something that gives most of the economic rewards, um, then people will accept it and will not build around it. And um, and then you can actually like, uh, yeah, make some opinionated decisions inside the protocol and try to avoid the worst. Yeah, this is an, oh, go ahead. Yeah, one, one other thing I would um, add is that if we want to add more kind of cherries on top to encourage solo staking, then there is always you know, off protocol things that we can uh, do to encourage it. Like even things like, um, you know, if some off-chain mechanism detect detects and verifies that you're a solo staker, you get a free DEFCON ticket or something similar. Uh, 
I think, you know, the, the strongest such mechanism would be that basically, you know, Justin mentioned in, in a bankless podcast earlier that, hey, you know, if you're a solo staker and you restake, you might actually get like an ad drop, which is kind of disproportionate to not just like the amount of ETH, but also to to individual units, you know, using some kind of a quadratic mechanism there, for example. Um, so I think there are, so the subjectivity layer, so the way we think about like uh, restaking is this, it, you know, the platform itself would need to be neutral, but there is a lot of intersubjectivity, like services building on top can express their own subjective views on what uh, what the important dimensions are. And I think that is, that is a new, I think a uh, new powerful thing where the society and the uh, community can guide where that energy goes. And I think, you know, uh, you know, the EF uh, researchers and uh, team has a kind of a big role to play there. Yeah, I had a question. So around like the enshrining and put, potential, you know, neuterings of, of these protocols. I feel like this is a topic that comes up over and over where, you know, we see this with uh, obviously liquid staking tokens. Um, there's a whole question around like, you know, should rollups be enshrined and to what extent and what components and now like with restaking. Um, and there's a, there's, there's almost like a paradox around credible neutrality there where like if you uh if you make these protocol changes to like keep things more credibly neutral but then end up in a way like censoring what is like one of the largest users of the protocol because we fear that it becomes a monopoly um you know that's also like a form of like non-neutrality of, of the ethereum base layer right like if if we do you know a protocol change at like neuters eigenlayer or neuters lido or neuters you know arbitrum um because there's like this fear that like it, it it's growing too big um then effectively it's like a, a weird form of censorship um in that so like I, i'm curious yeah how do you think about doing these changes or potentially doing them in a way that's maybe less like adversarial or uh, potentially um, risky to like, not only in the in the restaking context, but generally people who want to build something that's going to end up being used by like most Ethereum users. Um, yeah. So my opinion would be this, that we should establish a social norm here that building on, Ether on Ethereum, like building smart contracts, protocols on top, um, that should be, we should almost never touch that. I mean, it would be in a very extreme, very rare situation. Um, but messing with the staking layer is a different matter. Like, for example, if some, if like lots of validators start censoring, we do want the ability to like intervene. And so I think um, I think it would be a good signal to send, yes, like we might be opinionated on what you do on the staking layer. And um, that might include like messing with your protocol and destroying it. Justin Vitalik, I don't know if you have thoughts on that. I mean, for Lido specifically, one of the amazing consequences of the, the, the one-shot signatures that I mentioned is that you can do trustless delegation. So you can imagine a system like Lido where you don't have to trust the, the 29 operators uh, in any way. Um, and 
that would basically give us all the advantages of Lido, which is the, the liquid staking and, and, and really none of the downsides. Um, for restaking specifically, I don't have the silver bullet uh, right now. So it's kind of more of a, you know, hope for the best and embrace things and things go well. And kind of if things don't go well, then, then neuter it. Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, the other thing I'd add is that it's always, um, you know, important to be careful about neutering things and to, um, you know, create uh, kind, of, kind of maximally clear norms about like what is an okay situation and uh, what starts looking like a yeah, very not okay situation that re that requires some kind of action. And, you know, hopefully the, yeah, the very not okay situation is something that ends up happening zero times. Yeah, and I'd say I think one spot where we're doing a decent job at this is around like MEV boost. This does feel like something where, um, although far from like perfect, having had like the you know MEV teams actively contribute to it, having had like obviously ultrasound relay and like infrastructure that's been built around it, it seems like this. Yeah, I, I wouldn't call it like an equilibrium quite yet, but it seems like we've at least created like a, a semi-stable middleware that we can have both like private companies and like protocol contributors work on um, and test some of the incentives at play, obviously see some of the issues uh, with the sort of shortcuts that uh, we're taking to make this possible a bit outside of the protocol. But um, yeah, Justin, I don't know, like, do you have thoughts from just more the like collaboration and engineering process of like having done this around MEV boost and relays sort of outside the protocol to start as we, we go towards PBS. Right. So I guess one thing that I believe is that there's, there's never a rush, right? We always have a lot of time to discuss these, these, these big changes. And part of the reason is that proof of stake has a, an inbuilt healing mechanism. So if the worst were to, to happen, mass censorship or reversion of finality or whatever it is, we have ways to you know, identify the cancer and excise it from the system um, using either automatic systems or, or using the, the, the social layer. Um, and because we have time, that means that we we can experiment with solutions that are off-chain, as you said, and those might be good enough. Um, now, one of the, I think, things we should be striving for is doing all sorts of upgrades that you know, have very little downsides. And so we should be using this time to think of end games that are you know, maximally simple, maximally optimal, so that we, once we do the change, then we don't have to do it uh, again. Um, and I think another thing that's important is, is around timing. So a lot of the future upgrades of Ethereum are actually security upgrades, but they're hidden in the back pocket. And if and when they start becoming problematic, so for example, secret single leader election, that's something we've been working on for years and we haven't really prioritized it because we haven't seen you know, validators being DDoSed despite the fact that uh, you know, their, their identity and their IP address is, is, is public. But if and when this were to happen, this is something we can prioritize. And I guess another thing in terms of timing is around, um, you know, making use of sunk cost. And so uh, more specifically, I think there's going to be this massive upgrade to Ethereum that's going to come 
maybe in 10 years time, 15 years time, 20 years time, I don't know, around uh, you know, making Ethereum post-quantum. And there we really need to rip the band-aid and, and, and remove a lot of the cryptographic guts of, of Ethereum and make them you know, post-quantum. And this is kind of a great opportunity to put into place all the upgrades that we've wanted to put in place um, because we're going to be changing everything anyway. So might as well make Ethereum close to as close as perfect that, that, as we can. I, I have a quick thought to add to Justin on you know his worry about uh, restaking. Uh, in the post one shot quantum one shot signature world, I think you know there's no use for restaking. Restaking was there to write underwrite trust in distributed validation. If you could have like distributed validation already certified by one shot signatures, you don't need at least my own rules would be satisfied. <laughs> so uh, I think uh, because you know staking was there to underwrite trust in you know certain kinds of correctness, and if it's already kind of comes out of that quantum principle, so other people, not only Ethereum, that will be beneficiary of it. Other systems that want to build on top of are also beneficiaries of the same thing. Yeah, that's a great point that, you know, these one-shot signatures remove equivocation. And so a, a, a huge subset of restaking applications no longer really become meaningful because you can just do them with pure cryptography. But there's these two other things that still remain. One is uh, liveness and the other one is non-determinism and subjectivity. Um, if, if you're building oracles, for example, you 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 can't use you know pure determinism and, and pure pure cryptography. Oh, Sriram, were you gonna say something? Sorry. No, just uh, one more thing on like uh, things like uh, letting staking key change withdrawal keys is I think there are complex second order effects that may emerge with these kinds of things, which may lead us to exactly the opposite of the goals. For example, it may just end up that if that's the case, I can only delegate to somebody who's really trusted and then everybody delegates to the same party. And it's just going to be like, so, I, you know, we all know here that the, we don't know the second order effects of many of these systems, including restaking. And we we just need to kind of bones off each of these ideas and to, to find what the best equilibrium for the, the space and theorem is. Thanks. Yeah, I think this is a, a good place to start wrapping up. Uh, maybe as a like closing question, I'd, I'd love to hear from each of you in like a minute or so, like any thoughts or change in perspectives you had from this conversation or things that you'd like the community to take away. Um, Jesse, you want to kick us off? Sure thing. Yeah, I am pretty excited because I think previously a lot of the protocols are secured by multi-sigs uh, and you know, whether it's crypto economic security or it's security guaranteed by cryptography, I think it's huge step up, step up um, to like much better security. And I would argue that, like Justice said, right, like crypto economic security plus cryptography are kind of the most comprehensive solution for both deterministic versus non-deterministic um, results that you kind of want to get. And I, you know, like I have... I'm publishing some thoughts on like, you know, a lot of questions regarding restaking, but overall, I think I'm pretty bullish. I think Eigenlayer realizes the full value of Ethereum, right? Like the large trust layer is much more explicit than, you know, sort of like discussing staking, providing security to the network. And Eigenlayer makes that relationship uh, to security much more explicitly. So. Awesome. Uh, Degrad? Um, yeah, I mean, I think 
the takeaway for me is um, we we need to like uh, at the same time be careful, but also like uh, be nimble and um, and see how we how we need to uh, develop both social norms and the protocol um, in the face of this. And it's a, a similar situation that we faced a few years ago with MEV and uh, something new was added to our table and we need to handle it. Thanks. Um, Vitalik? Um, yeah, I mean, I think same thoughts as everyone else. Like, I think there's a, a lot of uh, value in uh, using staked ETH in other protocols. And I mean, like I personally, yeah, you know, continue to want to see yeah, stable coins work uh, like, and the decentralized stable coins have, um, you know, com uh, competitive rates. And so if like that use case can somehow be figured out in particular, then like that would make me very happy though. I'm definitely, yeah, you know, bullish on other kinds of restaking as well, but, you know, at the same time, making sure that staking decentralization, it gets uh, preserved as well as the neutrality of the protocol. It's uh, is super important. So, you know, glad to see that we're all facing the challenge. Thanks. Uh, Justin? Yeah, I would I would echo with what Vitalik said, especially on the, the stable coins. One of the ways where restaking can help is to build just much better uh, oracles. So right now, the oracles that we have uh, are basically multi-sigs. So for example, Chainlink, I believe the EFUSD oracle is a 21 out of 31 multi-sig. Um, can we build uh, an oracle which you know, reuses to a large extent the economic security of, 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 of Ethereum layer one? Um, and I guess another thought that I have is around, you know, maybe the, the evolving role of, of researchers, you know, we've been doing crypto economics for, for, for a long time, but maybe to an extent we, we're going to move to memento economics. Um, and what, what I mean by that is that there's, there's some things that are, you know, really rooted in, in, in at the social layer with, 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 with humans, you know, there's, there's this whole education thing but there's there's also the social norms for example of of not encroaching on on the social governance um you know the, the whole post around around uh, that that vitalik wrote and then another kind of question that i i've been wondering is what is the value of of decentralization uh, because there is one possible uh, scenario which is that we lose decentralization with restaking but it doesn't it doesn't actually matter and maybe decentralization is is only a bootstrapping mechanism to gain credible neutrality up until the point where we basically have technology, we have systems that um, don't rely so much on, on decentralization of the operators specifically. We still need decentralization of, of the nodes, uh, but if the, if the operators are basically handcuffed, you know, they can't do censorship because we have inclusion lists. Um, and they can't do any of the other bad stuff, um, then, uh, then, then maybe we, we only need decentralization for, for the memes because it, it kind of looks good. But once we've won, you know, once Ethereum is a you know, $100 trillion settlement layer for the intent of value, then, then, then maybe the value of decentralization goes down a little bit. Thanks. Uh, Sriram, want to close us off? Yeah, no, I think we're. I'm really glad that we're having these uh, discussions in understanding what the constraints and the contours around systems that that can be kind of built around this are. 
Um, I think there are clearly, I, I think going back to my own theme, which is open innovation, I, the, there is a tension between open innovation and, and security or safety. And uh, one of the things that excites me is finding new things that actually has, um, satisfies both of these things. You know, it's very safe, but it's also like uh, expands the scope of innovation. One of the things that we have like this is the idea that anybody can build new consensus protocols, like arbitrary consensus protocols. Uh, but the slashing condition is very simple. It's just, you know, don't double sign. And, you know, on the node, we have like a separate zone we call an anti-slasher, where you check that you'd never sign two signatures. And now you can like, you know, as a node operator, you don't need to kind of trust any of these special like node software that you're adding on because the anti-slasher is the only thing that you need to trust. And it's simple and it is universal across a whole class of applications. Now, anybody can write new like BFT protocols, you know, consensus protocols, and you can just like download and run them without even having any program integrity on them because you already checked the slashing contract, which is just a double signing contract and you have an anti-slasher. Maybe this anti-slasher runs inside a trusted execution environment. So even if somebody delegates to you, they have a kind of a sense of uh, assurance that they are never getting slashed. So finding examples like this is what gives me kind of hope that the the set of constraints and the set of like things that we want to do are not completely intention, that there's no use case, no interesting thing that can be done. There's actually a large class of useful and interesting things. And uh, my own interest in actually starting Eigenlayer was because we had new consensus protocols. And as long as, you know, we can start enabling other people to start coming up with these new things and 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 building it, I think that's already like super interesting. Amazing. Well, thank you all for coming on. Uh, David, do you want to wrap us up? Yeah, guys, that was a fantastic conversation. I really enjoyed sitting in on, on the background for that one. And, and Tim, uh, thank you for guiding us down this rabbit hole so well. I think this answered a decent number of questions, but also opened up the doors for further questions, further exploration. Uh, there's a lot of surface area here for conversation. So hopefully the listeners are routed to the spots that interest them the best and that they can contribute to the most. And Tim, I also want to give you a chance. What What are your reflections on this episode? That was what What, what are your What are your thoughts floating around? Um, I don't have much time to like think through as I'm doing this, but I have about five six pages of notes from the conversation here. So, you know, I'll I'll get back to you after the show. Um, but I think we should definitely do one of these again in you know twelve or eighteen months once uh we've seen uh this go into production at scale and some more uh. Yeah, just more evolution in the space. Well, like we like to say on, on Bankless, we like to front run the opportunity. And so hopefully this conversation uh, gives us a little preview of what could be in the future when it comes to restaking. Tim, once again, thank you for, for guiding this conversation. And Jesse, Justin, Vitalik, Sriram, Dankrat, thank you for, for all being here. Uh, the largest panel that we've ever had. That went pretty damn well, I'd say. Mm -hmm. yep, thank you, too. Cool. Thank you. Thanks, all. Thank you. Nation, you know the deal. Crypto is risky. Staking is risky. Restaking is even more risky. You can lose what you put in, but we are headed west. This is a frontier. It's not for everyone, but we are glad you are with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot.